0: Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor.
1: I'm Ben Rhodes.
0: Ben, I think I hate the Knicks now because you keep beating us. Is that I mean, too petty?
1: It is because, like, the Knicks have sucked for twenty years, Tommy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, I, don't, I, don't, but, I don't hate the Knicks. Let us enjoy this. You can, if you know, if, if we win a championship, then you can start hating on us again. But, but you know, we're the underdogs for now. Um, yeah, I'll root even for if you. Bill De Blasio. I mean, like, I don't, I, I didn't think he could be more clueless as a New York mayor, but. uh Choosing the nets of the Knicks is not a good look. What was
0: that? Why? Why did he dress like uh, like an undercover cop? What was he doing? Uh,
1: uh,
0: we- <laughs> long story. Yeah, long, long story. story. We need yeah, a better longer- mayor.
1: We need a better mayor.
0: More complicated than uh, the Israeli-Palestinian yeah. conflict, uh, which is our main topic today. So we're going to talk about the latest news out of Israel and Gaza, the Biden administration's response. Why Biden is more directly calling for a ceasefire, and then maybe what else he should be doing, what's up with Congress, uh, and, and you know how the world and, and average citizens in the U.S. are reacting. And then we're going to cover some additional news about the Uyghurs, progress in Congress about efforts to prevent sexual assault in the military. Very important story there a new space race, and some more. And then, Ben, our guest today is someone you know well, uh, Congresswoman Betty McCollum from Minnesota. We talked about her bill that would condition U.S. aid to Israel if it was used to detain kids, and there's some other restrictions in there. And she also tells us you know, the best ways for, for normal citizens like us to lobby members of Congress to, uh, to be annoying and to get our voices heard. So it, it was good. It was a good conversation.
1: Yeah, I mean, the one thing I'd just say about Betty McCollum, um, I came to know her pretty well in part because I got interested in cleaning up the eighty million unexploded u s. ordnance uh, bomb bombies. they're called little cluster munitions in Laos. And she was a champion on the hill for getting more funding for that. She had like a, you know, relatively, you know, sizable Lao diaspora in her district. But she's a human rights activist. Um, it, it's her her concerns, you know she's sometimes, I think, you know, cast as someone who has has it in for Israel in particular. I think she's, you know, pretty, Consistently advocated for human rights globally, and and uh, I'm I'm sure that informs her on, on this. Um, and and I, I um I'll just note Tommy because uh, uh, we're two weeks out from, from my book, so please uh, I won't I won't I won't plug too hard. I'll just say please you know pre-order if you've considered clicking that button. Uh, we're getting into the window where you'd actually get the book within a couple of weeks. So
0: thanks. Today's the day. What are you waiting for? Buy Ben's book. What's Seize the name the of the day. book?
1: Carpe Diem. After the fall, um, Being American in the World We Made. So uh, smash that pre-order button.
0: Please smash that button. Knock Don Jr. off the list. I assume he's on there. I don't really know that. Also, before we get to the news, uh, I hope everyone checked out this week's America Dissected, where Dr. Abdul El-Sayed is joined by Dr. Sanjay Gupta to talk about all of the changes that have been uh, made over the past year in medical journalism, to highlight some stories that he wished more people were paying attention to. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Subscribe to America Dissected. It's a great show. We all need uh, a doctor and some scientists to talk to us in terms that we actually understand because, uh, you know, Ben, I think over the last year, medical advice has confused some people. You may have noticed that.
1: Yeah, although I I benefited greatly from uh, Dr. Fauci on Pots of America. Uh clear, that was a I mean, seriously seriously cleared up a lot of questions I had, so.
0: I know. I was I told love it. That was a great interview. It was like yeah. so concise. It was good information. It was really a lot more fun than a normal Fauci interview. <laughs> Not surprisingly. Yeah, yeah totally. was, that's it. what I thought. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was great. It was really well done. Um okay. So let's uh, turn to Israel and Gaza because that's obviously the the big story in the world right now. So, uh, as of Tuesday morning, The Israeli Air Force has said that Hamas has fired more than 3,300 rockets. Uh, And over the weekend, the Israeli military did a briefing where they said they had struck 766 targets. I imagine that number is closer to 900 by now because it's Tuesday afternoon when we're recording. Also on Tuesday, the Israeli government closed a border crossing into Gaza after a mortar attack injured an Israeli soldier. This is gonna at least temporarily prevent aid trucks from getting into Gaza, so that's worrisome. Uh, The UN said that more than 52,000 Palestinians have been displaced by the airstrikes, and I've seen reports of over 200 Palestinians killed by the airstrikes, including several dozen children. Also on Tuesday, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians in Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza went on strike. It was a big coordinated strike. Um, And the executive editor of the Associated Press has called for an independent investigation into an Israeli strike that leveled a building that housed the AP and Al Jazeera offices in Gaza. So Ben, before we get to the Biden response, I just wanted to get a gut check from you, a general reaction to events we've seen over the last few days. You and I were doing a lot of tweeting, a lot of texting over the weekend. I think we both were in, in a, a pretty bad place at times. But how are you feeling
2: now?
1: I mean, I, I, look, I, I just think that you hold a mirror up to this and it just does not look good. Um, I, I mean, the the human tragedy of seeing, you know, over 60 children killed. Um, that's what I just can't, I keep coming back to, Tommy, is it? how is that worth it? W- what is that accomplishing? Um, you know, uh, and, and so you know, I we can unpack all different pieces of this from a policy perspective, but some things are not complicated. And, and the idea that um, children should not be killed on that scale is not complicated. It shouldn't be happening. Um, and 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 you know that's um, you know that's one of many reasons why I wish that the the Biden administration was more vocal, not just in calling for a ceasefire. They should absolutely be doing that. Um, but in speaking to the human cost of this, uh, conflict, um, and, 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 not just kind of speaking about it in terms of like, it's a, a specific challenge of this Gaza war to get through, but it, it's part of a broader dynamic in Israel and the Palestinian territories that, that just feels incredibly unsustainable. Um, and, and you know, the, 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 language that the Biden team has been using often ret- You know, refers to a a need to get to calm. Well, you know, calm suggests kind of like let's just like not have to pay attention to it anymore. You know, Um, I think what this conflict has done, even more than the previous Gaza wars, is is illuminate how seemingly unsustainable the the status quo momentum is uh, in the Israeli Palestinian conflict. And so again, there's a lot of other things to say here. Um, but but that's my main takeaway: is that, that that this 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 war needs to come to an end. Uh, efforts need to be undertaken to to get at some of the structural issues in Gaza and the broader Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The Palestinians turning to to nonviolence through a general strike, I think, is 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 a positive movement. And again, uh, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that Hamas is an enormous part of this problem. Um, People who turn to to rocket fire as their outlet are never going to achieve anything other than destroying things. Um, nonviolent political mobilization, as difficult as it is, um, and as much as it doesn't attract as much attention, tragically, as violence, um, does feel like a more constructive way to to channel um, so much of the the outrage and 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 despair that people seem to be feeling. So that those we have a lot to unpack, but those were, were my opening yeah. kind of thoughts.
0: You know, before we get to Biden response, I mean, you, I felt like over the weekend that the, the human cost of this war was unavoidable. I felt like I was constantly seeing images of children being, uh, who were wounded or, or wailing parents who lost a child. And then I heard this interview with a Haaretz columnist uh, named Gideon Levy who told the BBC World Service that he believes most Israelis are not actually being exposed to what is being done on their behalf in Gaza. And he said that the media in Israel has prevented average people from seeing the toll of the war, both the devastating uh, images of civilian casualties, but also just sort of like the general fear and despair uh, of average people in Gaza who feel like like they have no future. That was a very interesting perspective from, uh, you know, an Israeli journalist. The other thing I saw that was just I wanted to flag up top was that uh, Tom Cotton made a floor speech suggesting that the AP was colluding with Hamas, and maybe that was why the IDF struck the building. And that was one of the more fucked up things uh, I've seen in a while. So just uh, throwing those out there.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, on the Tom Cotton thing, just real quick, I like— you know you'll see one of these horrific images and you'll think well this is something that will finally get through to people and when you see comments like that from Tom Cotton you realize that there's nothing that could change his mind you know mm-hmm. um that 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 there's nothing that that could be done in Gaza that that he would find like abhorrent or or disproportionate and and that's you know, that's pretty chilling, right? Um, I think the other thing I wanted to say at the top time I mentioned this to you is that like, I saw some commentary on like, well, why do we talk so much about this? Not you and me, but just people in general. And again, I think people have to understand that, yes, this gets disproportionate attention in our political and media discourse, but there's a reason for that, or there's several reasons for that. Um, I mean, the first is that the U.S. is not just commenting on this as some third party without a stake in it. If you give... $3.8 Three point eight billion dollars in foreign military financing to a government you know a healthy chunk of their defense budget and frankly subsidizing the creation of an Israeli defense industry and then there are these repeated wars like this you' you're, you're implicated in that like we are a party to this conflict via our defense relationship with Israel, so that merits attention uh, similarly diplomatically you know our Obstruction of even a statement out of the UN Security Council on this is—we're a party to that as well. I mean, so so we can't act like the, the the people are selecting this as something to care about, as if you know it's just one of many issues around the world and not one in which the U.S. is is, is very much involved. And I think the other thing we have to, to acknowledge is that this is a unique conflict in that it you're, you're talking about you know deep connections between the United States and Israel. In many ways, the success of the independence and creation of the Israeli state you know, has been a multi-decade project of the United States, but also has to do with like the, the deep in- interconnection between the Jewish community in this country uh, and just Americans in general who've cared about Israel. And, and then you also have a, a country that is the home to you know, some of the holiest sites of three of the major world religions. So this is going to get attention. Um, and just lamenting that people pay more attention to this and other things, you, you know, is a way of obscuring the fact that, that we as American taxpayers are a part of, uh, of this. And we, as people who worked in American foreign policy, were a part of this. And, and we should all be examining it as honestly and openly as we can. Um, and, and I'm glad we create the space to do that on this podcast.
0: Okay, let's talk about what uh, President Biden is doing to manage this conflict. So, uh, you know, Ben, here's the things we know so far. The White House dispatched an envoy to conduct shuttle diplomacy between the two sides. Uh, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, he's been talking to the Israelis, the Palestinian leaders, and basically anyone else that can be helpful. Uh, President Biden himself talked with Prime Minister Netanyahu on Monday, and the White House readout of that call said, quote, the president expressed his support for a ceasefire which was the first time we heard him use that word, I believe. But you know, I, I think it's fair to point out that expressing support for a ceasefire is not the same as calling for or demanding one. And so I think a lot of folks, myself included, are trying to figure out why. Like it seems like a cost-free thing to say both sides need a ceasefire. So Ben, I was just going to quickly try to summarize some of the reasons I've heard for why Biden isn't more overtly making this call. I just want to get your take and, and sort of reaction to those arguments or like anything you're hearing from probably a lot of the same people. So the first thing I keep hearing over again is just a sincere belief that private diplomacy is the best way to get Bibi Netanyahu to do what you want. Uh, you know, you'll hear this from Jen Psaki and her on-the-record statements, and then others point to the fact that private diplomacy got a ceasefire after eight days in 2012, but a more public diplomatic effort, they say, in 2014 took nearly two months. So they're saying, like, this is just the more effective way uh, to get it done. Uh, an official told the Washington Post that they believe Netanyahu was going to continue targeting Hamas until he thinks the job is done no matter what. So I, I don't know if that is suggesting that, you know, I don't know, maybe a ceasefire is just, it, the, the calls for a ceasefire just missed the point. I, I wasn't totally sure how to interpret that. And then one report said the administration wants to avoid using words like ceasefire because it could be interpreted as treating Israel and Hamas as equivalent actors in this struggle. And then, you know, one aide told the Post that public pressure on Netanyahu might just backfire and, and it might lengthen the conflict. So those are some of the arguments I've heard. You know, obviously some of them are contradictory, right? It's probably different people talking to different news outlets and whatnot. What do you make against these arguments against calling for a ceasefire? And like, I, I don't know, what, what's the argument for just calling for one?
1: Yeah, I, I I watched this play out and and look, I was in similar debates in government. It won't surprise people to know that I was usually calling for <laughs> urging that we call for things like a ceasefire in this type of situation um I think that the knowing all these folks in the White House and they in in the administration and they're 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 good people um who I'm sure sincerely want the violence to stop i I, I could detect in their language you know uh, they were kind of defensive yesterday that the quiet intensive diplomacy is a better way of doing this it felt like a rationalization to me, and and, and look, I've been there, right? So, I'll, you know, I'll be self-critical. When you're in government, and you were there, Tommy. Sometimes you're doing something that's not really the right thing, but you you convince yourself that it's right. <laughs> you know, um, here's the challenge: if you have a public fight with Netanyahu, if you publicly call for a ceasefire, if you're seen as publicly pressuring Israel, that opens a bunch of cans of worms. You know, one. Political blowback in the U.S. and the Republicans are attacking you, and APAC is attacking you, and things like that. Um, secondly, though, if you're publicly calling for a ceasefire, and Netanyahu refuses. Then what mm-hmm. do you do? Well, then you, then you have much. Yep. Then then what? And you know, the then what I would say is that then it becomes untenable. For instance, to block UN statements on uh, calling for a ceasefire, and and then you're 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 increasing you know, the political blowback at home because suddenly you're you're working through the UN. And then suddenly there are questions about, well, if you're using certain language about the need for a ceasefire, could that be, you know, used to justify investigations of Israel in the international community and all these other things? A- and so because that's a hard thing to do, to take this public, you kind of convince yourself that there's there's all kinds of rationale to be doing this privately, right? I think that's wrong for a few reasons. One, I think that sometimes the United States, part of our credibility is just being honest about what's happening in the world, you know, and and not sounding like you're speaking in some foreign language of foreign policy speak um, or, or, you know, winking at people that, you know, we're doing this privately but not publicly. So one is just kind of being honest about what your position is. Um, I think the second thing is I heard this analysis time and again with Netanyahu. Like if you if you hug him, if you embrace him, if you give him public cover, you know, you're more likely to be able to get him to do things that improves. That is bullshit. That is that is wrong. That is wrong analysis. We have eight years in the Obama administration of of proof of that. You know, like like that never happened. Like we, we, you know, this idea that somehow, you know, we we were going to moderate Netanyahu's actions. Netanyahu makes decisions about his actions based on his domestic political Standing, uh, not based on like doing favors in return for something the Democratic president did for him, you know. And, and so I just part of what's so frustrating to me about this is we have a, a, over a decade of Netanyahu relentlessly undermining a Democratic president, you know, coming to the, speak to the U.S. Congress at the invitation of the Republican Speaker of the House without telling the Obama administration to, to, to hyperbolically argue against the foreign policy of the United States of America to the U.S. Congress. And then fully embracing Donald Trump. I mean, could not have been a closer partner to Donald Trump around the world, and and yet that context seems to be missing entirely from how the Biden team is approaching this. It's as if we're back in two thousand nine or something, and and we don't have twelve years of that record. Never mind the the degradation of the Palestinian circumstance over the course of that time as well. So so again, I I, I just think the analysis that that, that that and we're going to be able to bank some credit with BB you know by getting his back both flies in the face of 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 history and also kind of lets him totally off the hook for what he's done for the, the last um decade plus here um so uh, and the last thing I'd say about this and and this is tied to again why do we talk about this issue this is this is really undercutting our our global standing i mean there is a necessity of reestablishing or trying to build up U.S. credibility on human rights and on defense of, you know, the rules-based international order. And we've heard that messaging repeatedly, I think for good reason. And I'm glad from people like Tony Blinken and and Jake Sullivan and even President Biden. Um, but it's so hard when you are uh, one day are speaking about human rights in the, in the rules-based order. And the next day, you're literally the only country that is refusing to call for a ceasefire and seemingly OK, at least publicly, with what's happening in Gaza. And, you know, the circumstances have gotten harder, not easier for the United States on these issues after Trump. And, you know, like, it's not like we were perfect on this in the Obama years either. But like, I just think that I just don't know why when you, when you weigh the risks and benefits of, of being public in your positions... Um, what is truly gained by being private here. Now, if, if I'm rooting for them. And if there's a ceasefire, I'm sure they'll say, oh, see, we, we helped broker the ceasefire because it was private. But you still paid a price. You know. Even if there's a ceasefire in the coming days, the, the, the impression that was given uh, of US support for what's happened in Gaza is not going to go away. And, and, and that, that's just the reality.
0: Yeah, look, I'm rooting for these guys, too. I hope this private diplomacy approach works. But here's what we know. On Tuesday, the Israeli Defense Forces chief spokesman said, "Uh, the IDF is not talking about a ceasefire. We are focused on the firing. So it doesn't sound like there's a ceasefire imminent. And over the weekend, Netanyahu said... military operation will continue as long as it takes to achieve our goals and then he pointed to statements from the u.s and other countries uh, where they talked about israel's right to defend itself and said they know and we know that our actions are just and necessary so to your point we can try to do this dance where we're privately calling for a ceasefire publicly pledging support for israel's right to defend itself but but Netanyahu is hugging the u.s and making us complicit in what's happening in Gaza to the world, and I think that's that's creating a very very challenging uh, messaging framework for the United States that's going to do some damage. Ben, one thing I want to ask you about, which was on uh, so on Monday's Pod of America, I talked about that mantra that you and I used to hear all the time that like the U.S. and Israel shouldn't disagree publicly. And I think you know to dig deeper into this, what I don't get about that mantra is that it's just totally ahistorical, right? So two examples in 2010. The Israeli Interior Ministry approved the construction of 1,600 new apartments in East Jerusalem while Biden was visiting Israel. You and I were there for this. Biden was furious. He said publicly that the move, quote, undermines the trust we need right now and runs counter to the constructive discussions that I've had here in Israel. So that was a very public disagreement from Joe Biden. Here's the lead of a New York Times story from August 1982. President Reagan expresses outrage to Prime Minister Menachem Begin today over Israel's latest bombing raids in West Beirut, saying the attacks had resulted in needless destruction and bloodshed. So that's two very public examples of of the president and the VP disagreeing. And, you know, like Biden once said this, this... Inscription he wrote to something to BB said, BB, I don't agree with the damn thing you say, but I love you, which again is confusing because nobody (laughs) loves BB Netanyahu, right? Like Jim Baker once banned him from the State Department when he was Secretary of State. Joe Lockhart, who was Bill Clinton's press secretary, once said that, quote, Uh, Netanyahu is, quote, one of the most obnoxious individuals you're going to come into, just a liar and a cheat. He could open his mouth and you could have no confidence that anything that came out of it was the truth. So I guess I'm just trying to understand how like this no daylight approach became the mantra with Bibi Netanyahu, who was perceived by past administrations as someone who was dishonest. Uh, And when there is very recent evidence of president's and Joe Biden himself uh, disagreeing with bad policy decisions.
1: Yeah. And look, we certainly disagreed. I mean, the whole you know the last two years in government of mine were defined in some part by the disagreements over the Iran nuclear deal, right? I mean, it's possible to do this. Um, I mean, it's a truism that bears repeating that that if you have friends and you think your friends are are doing something wrong, um, You should tell them, you know, like I I don't uh, like I don't know why we define a friendship with Israel as a circumstance where we, you know, provide them enormous support um, and then can't point out if they do. You know, Netanyahu had no problem pointing out when he thought, you know, what Obama was doing was wrong. I think that part of what's changed, Tommy, from certainly the Reagan point is this really deep rooted evangelical Christian support for Israel that has become more and more ingrained in the Republican Party, which assures that there is one major political party in this country that is always going to be in lockstep with Israel, no matter what. And, and, you know, the Trump administration was proof of that. I mean, Mike Pompeo, right, uh, number one enemy of the pod, um, you know, delivered a speech to the Republican convention with the old city of Jerusalem behind him. I mean, did that happen? Like from the yeah, embassy yeah, building. Like, <laughs> I mean, it was not subtle. It was both a message about, yeah, no. sure, national security, but it's also a wink, wink message to evangelical Christians. And so I think what's happened politically is as the Republican Party has become more and more fervent in its support for kind of the right wing of Israeli politics, that means that the only place for debate about these issues is within the Democratic Party. And some Democrats are pretty lockstep in their support of Israel, too. And groups like APAC do spend a lot of time and effort making sure that they are, which means that there is always going to be a political cost or a political fight of some sort in expressing any criticism of Israel. And, and I remember feeling this very acutely in the Obama administration. You know, if, if we had some dust up with Netanyahu, usually at Netanyahu's instigation, you could count on. You know, a week or two of stories that distracted you from your infrastructure message, you know, and and that's exhausting, right? It's like let's just yeah. not let's just not have those fights because you know, and there's good political judgment to say, you know, why have a futile fight with Netanyahu when you know I can't really change what he's doing anyway, and I want to focus on these other things, and, and, and so that's kind of created a situation where there's a perceived cost to any daylight but the flip side of that coin Tommy is that the situation has gotten so much worse on the ground in terms of the Israeli Palestinian conflict and in terms of the fact of the Israeli government moving further and further to the right to the point that like democratic constituencies cannot look at this relationship and see themselves in it in terms of blanket support for everything Israel does because you know they're progressive they care about human rights and and you see this generational change an AOC or Greg Meeks now is chairman of, of the House Foreign Affairs Committee because Jamal Bowman defeated Elliott Dangle, who was in line to be chair and, and would have been, you know, I think in lockstep in, with Israel in this circumstance. Like Joe Biden cannot ignore the reality that his own base is just going to be more and more uncomfortable with this, and the fact that you have political difficulties because the Republicans will scream at you, and and some Democrats will be squeamish about this. I'm I'm some sympathetic to how hard that is, having been there myself, but it's unavoidable.
0: I want to talk more about the congressional reaction in a minute, but before that, like I I, I tried to round up some suggestions from like sort of smart people. Uh, that I that I was reading or or people, you know, that, that I know about things Biden could or should be doing to help, you know, hasten the end of this conflict. I just wanna run a few of those by you and see if like any jump out at you as, as good ideas or bad ideas or things you'd add in there. So some people have suggested just doing more to publicly empower the Egyptians to negotiate a ceasefire. Egypt is talking to both Israel and Hamas. They have actual real leverage over Hamas because they control one of the border entries into the Gaza Strip. Experts think they're the most likely to succeed. Uh, Others have suggested asking the various Abraham Accord countries to do more to support the Egyptian negotiations get them to condemn Hamas and also like figure out ways they can help the Palestinian people um, and then use like the new leverage they have from these uh, agreements to push the Israeli government to do a better job, you know, uh, on restricting settlement construction and all the other underlying issues. Um, There's great NGOs out there that are promoting peace and people to people exchanges uh, that need more help. Um, Some have talked about, you know, letting Israel know that after the war ends, the U.S. is just going to be more engaged in reducing the underlying tensions like we saw in East Jerusalem. Others have saying like, Biden should embrace the John Kerry plan that was laid out at the end of the Obama administration for a two-state solution uh, and potentially stop blocking criticism of the bombing in Gaza or calls for a ceasefire. At the UN, that was sort of like a long laundry list of potential options there. But I wonder if any of those ideas kind of jump out at you as as the most worthy of consideration, or if there's better ideas that I didn't list. I'd love to hear those.
1: Well, I don't. Yeah, I, because I don't subscribe to the view that U.S. public pressure isn't helpful. I, I, again, I think the quickest way to stop the actual um, bombing of Gaza, um, and, and you know, and the Hamas rocket fire, by the way, um, uh, is is to publicly call for a ceasefire. Um, and, and to kind of create an inevitability of momentum in the, you know, because uh, I'd say even in 2012, by the way, Tommy, I was involved in that, and what we did very publicly is Barack Obama. I remember sitting in Cambodia in a room with Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Tom Donilon, and Jake Sullivan. And and having oh, yeah, it, I was there. Yeah, you in, were there. in that yeah
0: in that hotel with the we with we the went casino. from Aung San Su Kyi's house, this like incredible, this incredible, amazing emotional event to a smoke filled fucking yeah, casino yeah. in Cambodia where we're trying we were across we were across the street from the Khmer Rouge food mart. I remember that very well, and everyone just sitting around being like, "Oh my god, how do they broker this ceasefire?" So
1: no, I no, continue. that's exactly right, and because basically what happened was we had to decide, Obama had to decide whether to publicly send Hillary Clinton on a plane to Israel to negotiate a ceasefire, right? And we knew that 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 was basically, that was public pressure, right? I mean, you don't send your your very prominent secretary of state out there. She can't come back without a ceasefire. Everybody knows that. Netanyahu knows that, right? So the decision, which then I had to announce, I remember in that smoke-filled casino, (laughs) um, I remember the absurdity of walking through a bunch of like Cambodian guys playing slots and, and chain-smoking cigarettes too. to go announce like on, a, too. that Hillary Clinton was flying to, to Israel. That was publicly calling for a ceasefire because it was putting Hillary Clinton on a plane to go there, knowing that she, she wasn't going to leave until we got one, right? So- people so you, just, you disagree with this idea I disagree that, with that idea was that was, a that more more was private all private, private. It was, 14, yeah it was yeah. private that it was Hillary Clinton yeah. there but what the hell do you think she was there to do we publicly announced that she was going there to pursue a ceasefire you know um so that's why I do, end the conflict i think beyond that uh, the couple things i point out the situation in gaza itself i mean because everybody always acts like there, there's kind of either you're solving the two state solution or there's nothing to be done the situation in gaza is completely unsustainable right and, and, and what is that situation? Like Hamas wins an election in 2006 and basically takes control of the Gaza Strip in 2007. Israel imposes a land errancy blockade and p- imposes really strict limitations on anything that can get in and out of Gaza. And this is why people say it's like living in an open air prison. The people there do not have freedom of movement they they have electricity for a few hours of a, a day they have water for a few hours a day there's like 40% youth unemployment like there's there's no future if you're a young person in gaza never mind the trauma of these periodic wars right it is a humanitarian catastrophe that's been ongoing for more than a decade. And we would painstakingly negotiate with Israel to to let more goods in because they would say anything kind of a dual use, a military purpose and a civilian purpose couldn't get in. And that was like, you know, concrete for buildings, right? I mean, um, and, and, and so never mind that people from Gaza couldn't sell their goods into Israel and the West Bank and, and things like that, that a, a resident of Gaza who's Palestinian could not go to the West Bank. If they had family there, they just were cut off from those people. That is a humanitarian situation is untenable. Hamas, yes, has rockets and has continued to rearm with these rockets. But I would argue for the sake of Israel's security. And and, and yes, I, I associate myself with everybody who says it, it is untenable for a nation state to have rockets fired indiscriminately at its citizens. I'd say, first of all, that's why we built an Iron Dome system that protects against these rockets, which I'm very proud is has saved incalculable number of Israeli lives. But also, clearly the blockade is not stopping the the component parts from getting into Gaza, the, the tunnel networks and other ways in which they're getting the pieces of these rockets. So what you're doing is you're punishing the residents of Gaza without stopping the the flow of whatever's needed to build these rockets from Iran or whoever else into, in, into Gaza. I think you have to try a different approach here. And, and frankly, I think you'd be more likely to dislodge Hamas if you open up space for the people of Gaza, they they don't have a choice right now. They're just stuck there with Hamas, you know. The, 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 so right. I, I would, as much as I'm a skeptic of the Abraham Accords and the the kind of motivations of those involved, this is one to turn to the Emiratis and and the the Gulf countries and say what is a big initiative to to c- try to dramatically improve humanitarian situation in Gaza, and in doing so, hopefully empower different political actors in Hamas so that you're both trying to improve the humanitarian situation for Palestinians in Gaza, and, and you're trying to deal in a different way with this, this the, the challenge uh, of Hamas.
0: Just, just on your Gaza point, just two other things, Ben. I mean, yes— Hamas did win elections in Gaza, but not everybody voted for them. I think that's an important point, right? There's not like universal support for Hamas uh, among Gaza's citizens. I'm sure a lot of them hate them in large part because of the the realities uh, of the total lack of freedom of movement that you talked about, right? Like if you're a a parent with a bunch of small kids and you are just trying to avoid shelling, you have nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. The Navy is by the sea. I mean, I've heard parents, I was listening to an interview today where a father had taken his his kids into the, just the densest part of the city because it was his hope that that's where they'd be safest because he just hoped that the airstrikes wouldn't hit the most dense urban parts uh, uh, of the Gaza strip i mean that's a hell of a risk to take that that's a scary reality you, there's no escaping the shelling for just the, the innocent families who are involved. Yeah
1: and those elections were were 15 you know over 15 years ago some of these, you know these kids getting killed weren't born when they took place the Palestinian Authority yeah. had been discredited in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah, I don't think that you can assert that today we know that, that if the Palestinian people in, in Gaza had an actual choice, you know, that they, that they, that they would, you know, I, I think there's plenty of reason that they wouldn't choose Hamas. And, and the reality is what you see in Palestinian politics with this general strike today is is kind of a leaderless movement, which is great, you know, because the Palestinian Authority and Hamas have both failed the Palestinian people in a lot of ways. Uh, obviously, the Palestinian Authority has been a much more responsible actor relative to Hamas. Um, but yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out because I don't want to leave people with the impression that the, there's some kind of like you know massive popular support for Hamas among Palestinians. There's not. I mean, um, the, the 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 last thing I was going to say, Tommy, this has been really frustrating to me is. John Kerry did put out these final status positions for the United States right v- like a new step for the United States to publicly declare here are positions on the future borders of an Israeli and Palestinian state uh, the future security arrangements of a two-state solution the idea that the u.S supports Jerusalem being the capital of both countries right um, and 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 the right of uh, the position on the right of return I don't know why Joe Biden hasn't just I mean, John Kerry is in the Joe Biden administration. Tony Blinken was the deputy secretary of state at that time. You know, obviously, Joe Biden was vice president. Um, I do think that gives you at least a foothold w- when there is such kind of despair about a Palestinian state, just reassert, hey, here's what we believe the outcome you know, of these negotiations should be, or at least the starting point for, for these negotiations should be, um, so that there's something public in the world about what the position of the U.S. government is with respect to a two-state solution. That won't solve the problem, but I do think it gives you some diplomatic and moral authority to say, like, here are positions, um, and, and we think you guys should negotiate on the basis of these positions, and this is informed by—and that Kerry made clear in that speech, that wasn't just John Kerry. That was informed by the Camp David process— under Bill Clinton. That was informed by you know, the Annapolis process uh, under George W. Bush. That was informed by the Kerry process under Barack Obama. We've been at this for a long time. If you really want a two-state yeah, solution, yeah. people know what it looks like. And and, and, and and I don't know why, you know, we took a lot of political heat for abstaining from a UN Security Council resolution that condemned Israeli settlement uh, expansion and putting out those positions. We took that heat in part in the hope that the next democratic administration, that we were doing them a favor, that we were essentially handing off a baton to them. Here, look, guys, we're giving you these publicly stated positions. So you don't have to go through a laborious process of taking the political hit for coming out with this. So I do think that's something that they should embrace.
0: Yeah. Uh, Two more quicker things on this before we get to other topics. So There's a lot of movement in Congress, and you'll hear about this even more in my conversation with uh, Congresswoman McCollum. But you're starting to see calls for Biden to do more to broker a ceasefire and, and, and more calls to just generally exert pressure on the Israeli government. So AOC over the weekend tweeted some pretty harsh criticism of Israel itself, saying, quote, Apartheid states aren't democracies, end quote. Uh, And she criticized the Biden administration for vetoing a UN call for a ceasefire, saying, quote, if the Biden admin can't stand up to an ally, who can it stand up to? Uh, Separate from that, 28 senators issued a statement calling for a ceasefire. That was led by John Ossoff from Georgia. Senator Schumer uh, of New York endorsed the call for a ceasefire. Senator Bob Menendez said he was deeply troubled by civilian casualties uh, and the destruction of the building that housed the Gaza Bureau for the, the AP and Al Jazeera. Those are yeah. uh, two like very pro-Israel U.S. senators. The House Foreign Affairs Committee chair, Representative Gregory Meeks, said he's sending a letter to President Biden requesting a delay in the sale of $735 million worth of missiles to Israel. So Ben, I mean, to me, this seems like a very different reaction out of Congress than past conflicts. It, it, do you agree? Yeah, that never happened
1: when Barack Obama was president. And, and and look, it's a party changing, but this is above all the creation of, of Bibi Netanyahu, right? I mean, I don't know how many times yeah. we've been warning for the last decade that he was putting – support for the Israeli government at risk in the United States through his policies and his actions. Um, we cannot ignore that this is an extreme right wing guy who's said publicly that there'll be no Palestinian state on his watch and that his expanding settlements, including into incredibly provocative places like Sheikh Jarrah, and is basically telling Democrats to go fuck themselves for the better part of a decade. And then you're surprised that Democrats are like, wait a second, t- pause. You know, why, why are we shoveling ever more military assistance to a government that is ignoring us, um, in in many cases, insulting us, as certainly was the experience in the Obama years, um, while clearly having no interest whatsoever in the two-state solution that was supposed to be the basis of how we thought about the Palestinian issue for the last 20, 30 years, right? Um, So this, let's be very clear, this is a creation of Bibi Netanyahu's, right? Democrats are reacting to the changes of the Israeli government um, more than anything else. Um, and and I think it's healthy. And I think Meeks deserves a ton of credit, right? He's been traditionally pretty pro-Israel guy, but I think he's right to say, wait a second, like, if I've got my constituents and the Democratic Caucus concerned about the civilian casualties in Gaza, I want to know what this arms sale is and what to what end are these weapons going to be put? Those are legitimate questions for Congress to ask.
0: Yeah, it also, I think, shows why elections are so important. I think that, you know, Elliot Engel probably would have taken a different approach if he was still uh, the chairman of that committee. But he lost to Jamal Bowman uh, in a primary recently, and and now things are, are quite different. So primaries matter. Um, last piece on this. So over the weekend, there were protests in over 20 cities across the U.S. about what's happening in Gaza and then just sort of U.S. policy towards Israel generally. People also took to the streets uh, internationally and in London, Paris, Sydney, elsewhere in solidarity. There, there were some really unfortunate videos of uh, someone in London, I believe, shouting anti-Semitic comments that are obviously disgusting. But I think most of these marches and conversations were were about solidarity with the Palestinian cause. Uh, in Los Angeles, uh, where Crooked Media is based, thousands of people showed up to a rally outside of the federal building and, um, Our producer, Jordan Waller, attended this rally. uh, She interviewed some folks. Uh, So here is a clip of what it sounded like. Some of the people she talked to, the first person you'll hear uh, is a young Palestinian-American woman who came out with her boyfriend and her eight cousins. We are
3: in L.A. on Wilshire Boulevard. Um, What brought me out was that I am Palestinian. I'm a full Palestinian um, citizen, and I'm Palestinian on both sides. So I have to support, of course, because I can't really do much over here, and this is the most I can do um, as a citizen of the United States. Um, I hope that with all this awareness that's coming up right now, that the U.S. government will be able to um, actually acknowledge what's happening in Palestine for once and work on... Sending less money and budgeting and sending less money to Israel and supporting their military. School never taught me anything. The only reason I know anything is because I am full of Palestinian and my parents have taught me and I've seen it my whole life. I just hope that, you know, the government will actually make change for once and hopefully this oppression is over sometime soon. And not just in Palestine, but... All over the world, where the U.S. government is aiding other countries to kill their people, so I just hope there's some change made in the future. My name is
2: Julia. Um, I'm I'm from Riverside, and I'm Mexican, but uh, what's, we stand with uh, Palestine because what they're doing is not fair. This is their land, and um, they're not being like having our human rights. They're not giving Palestinians their human rights. If you turn on the news, they're not like, really giving much of um, the side of Palestine it's all about Israel and there's two sides to every story and they're not seeing uh, showing how much uh, the Palestine um, people are suffering from this they're just putting the what Israel's go- going through my name is Rick when I go to public meetings I introduce myself as a recovering Zionist it is an untenable way of government to, to raise someone one people's rights over another people's rights is absolutely unacceptable to me anywhere anytime including there and especially there because it misrepresents us as jews the jewish people is not and has never been in a majority opinion that that israeli racist way of governing other people is just it's not just and we will see it down Israel is at the high point. It is still at the high point of ethnic cleansing and has been doing it continuously since 1948. And we've got to stop it because it's not really benefiting anyone except a few creeps like Netanyahu and, uh, and the arms manufacturers. They win every day. And my friends on both sides of this lose every day. The Jews and the Palestinians lose.
0: So Ben, you know, like last thought on this. I mean, it's interesting how quickly this became an international cause, sort of like, you know, the Black Lives Matter protest did. Uh, and, and I guess this seems to suggest that Jared Kushner was wrong when he said that the conflict is, quote, nothing more than a real estate dispute. It seems a touch bigger than that at the moment.
1: Yeah, it, it matters to people for the reasons I talked about earlier. And and, and I just, you know, the anti-Semitism is, is awful, right? And it has no business in this world. And anti-Semitism has been at the root of so many of the most horrific things that have happened um, in, in, for, for centuries. Um, and 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 so the first thing is, you know, and I've made clear too that the right-wing anti-Semitism, is, you know, uh, it needs to be condemned, is quite insidious too in the white nationalist movement. But if you are anti-Semitic, like you are doing no favors for the Palestinians or anybody else, and you have no business being a part of any Effort to, to support human rights. So go fuck yourself, okay, to the anti-Semites out there. <laughs> um, I think the second thing is the, you know, the the emotion that people feel. I I, I just want to validate. Like so much of this comes from people caring about Israel, right, and and wanting it to to succeed and and being worried about where it's going, because. What is the future five, 10, 20 years from now, right? If they don't deal in a just and equitable way with the Palestinian issue, with this massive asymmetry of power? I, I think that's what's so worrisome to people. You know, I I think we should have huge empathy for Israelis as well, not just because rockets are fired at them. You know, I I I don't like the shorthand of all Palestinians are terrorists, right? That the Palestinians are firing rockets. I also don't like the shorthand, by the way, that all Israelis are just people who have rockets fired at them or people that or, or you blanketly support Nanyana's policies. I've been in touch with a bunch of my friends in Israel. You know, I had one telling me about having to go into bomb shelters with her, her three kids and, and who are young and having to explain to them the whole israeli Palestinian conflict, you know, and, and I had this image in, oh, the, you know, uh, cause I, I've got hard. a you know, six and four year old. and I was trying to imagine being in a bomb shelter trying to explain to them why they were there. And by the way, she said, trying to explain why Palestinian kids were in even more danger, right? I, I, I didn't like living as an American under Trump. I didn't like the feeling of having someone who was so contrary to my values in charge of the country. Um, and the fact that he was democratically elected made that even worse. I'd like us to express solidarity with the millions of Israelis. And, and again, it may not be a majority, unfortunately. But the, the millions of Israelis who feel victimized in many ways, yes, they're worried about rockets flying at them, but they also look at a government that doesn't reflect their values either. And, 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 and it's so important that we, we don't lose sight of that, 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 we, that there's solidarity with Palestinian people who are suffering greatly, but there's solidarity with Israelis who, who don't want this either. And that ultimately, as with all these other mass movements that we talk about all the time on the show, that, it, that never quite fully succeed, but like, or feel like they're making progress, like a nonviolent effort over time to, to pursue a just outcome is worth it. It's worth it, is, is, no matter how hard it feels. Because if you give up on that, then you know that you're succumbing to hopelessness. And, and that's going to be bad for everybody, Israel, Palestinians, America, human rights around the world.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, as frustrated as we all were with Donald Trump as president when he didn't win the popular vote, I mean, <laughs> Netanyahu has been prime minister for years and he has not come close to winning no, he gets the popular like 30% vote in Israel. Mean, like, yeah. yeah, like who's getting like 30%. I mean, look, the, the sad truth is that there are parties to the right yeah. of Likud that yeah. are picking up more and more seats. But anyway, BB sucks. He's corrupt. He's a racist. Get rid of him. Okay. Let's turn to some important news about legislation in Congress that would change how the United States military prosecutes sexual assault. the The context here is tragic that there is an epidemic of sexual assault in the within the U.S. military. The number of cases reported each year has risen since 2006, when the conviction rate uh, is extremely low when cases are actually charged. We're talking about like seven percent in 2019. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York and a lot of other great activists have been arguing for years that the way the military handles these allegations is actually part of the problem. So right now, commanders, like the person above you, the person you report to, get to decide whether sexual assault allegations against their subordinates go to trial. So that can discourage victims from coming forward because they don't want to like tell the boss and, and face retaliation, or it could lead perpetrators to getting more lenient treatment because their commanders argue that they have otherwise strong performance records. Uh, so what Senator Gillibrand's bill does is it takes that power out of the chain of command and instead puts a decision... Uh, to charge these cases in the hands of independent military prosecutors. So Gillibrand has been just doggedly working on this issue for years, and her efforts gained uh, some additional steam recently when Republican Senator Joni Erst agreed to co-author a new version of the bill now we have 61 senators, including 18 Republicans, signed on as co-sponsors, which means the Gillibrand bill is bipartisan and it's filibuster-proof. President Biden has pledged, quote, an all-hands-on-deck effort to combat sexual assault in the military. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has convened a review that is expected to recommend decisions on these trials and, and how to fix the process. So more work to do, but hopefully this bill is going to move quickly. And again, just huge credit to Senator Gillibrand for all her work on this over the years. Yeah,
1: I mean, the one thing I'd say, Tommy, is that Way back when, this shows you you know how long this has been going on. Um, when uh, my wife Ann Norris was uh, a Senate staffer, not not that long ago, but 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 it was you know it, it, she was working for Barbara Boxer. Um, Boxer was right. working with Gillibrand on this very issue, and 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 and, and I, I remember hearing her frustration at this um, because really, there's they've tried the other ways, they've tried. The, you know the military's tried to keep this in the chain of command keep this in the kind of more traditional military yeah, reform it doesn't yeah. work it does not work you know no. and by the way we did not do enough on this in the obama years we you know we we because we, we wouldn't take this what 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 people have learned is you have to take this step of removing it from the chain of command um and so you know c- uh, commend Gillibrand and everybody else in this effort and and hopefully this gets gets done and and, and it's common sense like you know you you should have an independent mechanism to review this rather than, you know, keeping it all inside, you know, the uh, the kind of somewhat opaque uh, military justice system, which can be wonderful on some issues, but, you know, on this is, has not met the mark.
0: Yeah, the data has shown that it's failed, so uh, very overdue change. Uh, ben, we have some fun space news this week. So first- Ah, uh, Chinese state media reported that China has successfully landed a rover on yeah. Mars. So that would make China the second country to do so after the U.S. Their rover is going to do a bunch of scientific missions, and then it will conduct a three-month mission to look for signs of ancient life. So, look, we wish our uh, Chinese astronaut friends the best of luck. I will say that it would be a lot cooler if they also had, you know, like a little yeah, space sorry, helicopter, you guys are in helicopter hanging on that thing.
1: But yeah.
0: You know, get them next time. <laughs> Second, there's a new space race between the U.S. and Russia, okay? And this time, they're competing to see which country can be the first to film a movie in space. So last year, Tom Cruise and NASA announced that they are collaborating to film a movie on the International Space Station, or ISS. Roscosmos, I hope I said that right. Mike McFaul, correct me if I'm wrong. The Russian Space Agency announced that they, too, will film a movie on the ISS about a surgeon who goes to space to operate on an astronaut too ill to return home. Ben. Are you disappointed that Steven Seagal is not included in any of this? He seems like an obvious choice, but he was left off the roster.
1: Well, I, I mean, I, I, I'm actually like, well, first of all, congratulations to the Chinese. Um, you know, uh, the, the more rovers, the merrier. Um, it's a great human achievement. Um, I, I, I know, Tommy, I, I was thinking like, you know, we talked about Putin playing hockey. Why isn't Putin like the star of the movie in the space station, you know? Hey, um, get your ass Yeah, there, Yeah, bro. yeah. Like, I mean, you could go up there. Um <laughs> Uh, I mean, or, or maybe like you should have, we could have a crossing of the streams and like, you know, if we're really in the Cold War with Russia, like Tom Cruise is in some, some battle of wills with the Russians in the space station at the same time, you know? Um, That'd be cool. Friendly, you know, no, no, no actual, you know, we want to be careful up there, but, but maybe you, we could do, they could play chess up there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like exactly like a Cold War era like chess drama on the space station or something. Bobby Fischer. Yeah. But then yeah, at the sure. end of the movie, after, you know, uh, uh, 90 minutes of, of of competition, they discover that they have to work together to fix something on the outside of the space station, and then they make peace between nations. Like, that's the kind yes. of movie I could get behind.
0: They have to work together to get Elon Musk to stop tweeting so that he'll fix the rocket that can bring them yeah. home.
1: Yeah. W-
0: look, yeah. there's no bad ideas in a brainstorm. Yeah. <laughs> we're just <laughs> yeah, pitching, yeah, we're look, here. movie studios, call us.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're here. We're here. We're available.
0: <laughs> we're here. They're trying to get the Tesla off the rocket that Elon launched because they want to resell it for,
1: for as an it's NFT. Called, you know, Pod Save the World Productions, we're, we're ready to go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, the UFOs are out there. I mean, the UFO news, like, is just passed like a fart in the wind, you know? I mean, uh, it,
0: man, I, like, I still haven't read the New Yorker story because, like, sometimes they get a little it's intimidated long. by like the 10,000 yeah. words. I'm excited.
1: Yeah. It, it Yeah, it's, it's, Well, what's crazy about it is like, it's about not just the UFOs themselves, but like the kind of subculture of these people who've been, been at this for like a really long time who are now being like validated. Um, and, and, you know, it's gotta be pretty satisfying to spend decades like insisting that there are these UFOs. And then suddenly like everybody's like, oh yeah, they are right. (laughs) There there are these UFOs. Yeah,
0: totally. Absolutely. Yeah. My cousin Wendy sends me, uh, all the space news that pops up, I just got to have to read the really long New Yorker story. Um, ben, one uh, slightly darker story before we get to fun stuff to wrap up. So we have talked uh, a lot on the show about the ongoing genocide in Xinjiang province in western China, where the Chinese government is, is systematically trying to eliminate the Uyghurs and other Muslim minority groups. A lot of that coverage has focused on China putting like a million or more Uyghurs into these reeducation camps uh, and you know reports of the horrible treatment of detainees. But a new report by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute is highlighting the impact of another tactic that the Chinese government is trying uh, to use to to just wipe out the Uyghurs and others, which is coercive birth control. That includes forced abortion, sterilization, and detentions. And as a result, according to this institute, the birth rate across the region fell by nearly half, 48.74% in the two years between 2017 and 2019. It fell even more in areas with the largest concentrations of Uyghurs and other minorities. Um, According to the Associated Press, that is the sharpest known decline in birth rates of any territory in recent history. Um, You might remember back in January, the Chinese embassy in the U.S. tweeted a link to a report, uh, big air quotes uh, in report there. I think it was in Chinese state media that argued this drop in the birth rate in Xinjiang resulted from the eradication of religious extremism, which makes no sense. The tweet literally said... Study shows that the process of eradicating extremism, the minds of Uyghur women in Xinjiang were emancipated and gender equality and reproductive health were promoted, making them no longer baby-making machines. They are more confident and independent. That was one of the more disgusting things ever tweeted by, you know, a state-run account. It was widely condemned. I guess I don't know. There's just this accumulation of evidence that this genocide is happening. We talk about it often. We always try to figure out like what the world could be doing about it. And I just, I'm at a loss. When you read something this horrific, I'm just at a loss as to how there isn't just more of an urgent focus. But here we are.
1: I think that like if everybody, we mentioned the New Yorker story that was recently out about like inhabiting the experience of one woman who did nothing wrong and was thrown into these camps and, Forced into small cells with other women, denied food, medical care, um, you know, basically psychological torture. Um, forced to to consume all this propaganda, um, and but then you know even more harrowingly, once released, nobody wanted to associate with her because um, you know you could get thrown in camps for talking to someone who was in camps. Like the psychological torture of this, on top of the fact that you have things like you know, forced sterilizations and people disappearing. This is no joke. I mean, this is this is a genocide of a people, a, at a minimum, a cultural genocide and a mass atrocity in terms of a human rights violation. Um, and, you know, I think we have to care as much about this as, as any other issue with China. I mean, if you look at the actions of the US government, you know, we We've taken more forceful action, you know, on trade disputes, right, um, than on yeah. this, and that sends a message that we care more about, you know, the trade than this. Um, I, to cre- give the credit, you know, to where credit is absolutely due, I think Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan have much more forcefully raised this issue, multilateralized it, imposed sanctions. So the the trend line is. Good, I think, in terms of the U.S. elevating this, but I mean, when you look at the scale of this, and when you look about what does it say? A government will, that will do this will do other things, you know. Um, yeah, they will do other things within their own territory and abroad, and 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 I'm not trying to you know be some hyperbolic kind of you know I want to have a cold war with China guy. I'm just like this is what we're looking at, you know. Um, and having spent a lot of time on my book uh, looking at this. I it just, I all I can say is like, we need to, this needs to be top priority, right? Um, and because yeah. um, yep. you know what? It, certain things are just well beyond the pale.
0: Yeah, it is a profound evil. And, and I totally agree with you that uh President Biden and, and Jake and Tony, they really have, you know, up their game and, and focus more on this as opposed to President Trump, who basically told Xi Jinping that he was doing the yeah, right thing yeah. and he should keep it up. He cared more about uh,
1: soybean sales I mean, than than this, you know? <laughs>
0: Yeah. Uh literally. Last thing. Uh a group of more than 100 retired generals signed an open letter that regurgitated some of the most absurd lies and conspiracies about the 2020 election. And you know, this is really it's a worrisome reminder that the US military is just not immune to this stuff. They're not immune to lies, they're not immune to conspiracy theories. They are not immune to disinformation. But what I found really upsetting then is that one of the most celebrated and revered members of the U.S. (laughs) Navy actually signed on to this letter. This was uh, Rear Admiral Jack Mihoff (laughs) added his name (laughs) to the list of distinguished members of the military who weighed in. And, you know, like Jack (laughs) Meehoff Is on board. <laughs> so this is literally true. We're uh, not
1: just kind of growing uh, out here. Like this, this actually happened. It is on the the name is on the list.
0: It is there. It's Rear admiral was a nice touch, by the <laughs> yeah. way. Um, yeah. So some prankster somehow got in touch with the organizers of this crazy letter with these crazy conspiracy theories, and they were so thirsty to just add another name to their bullshit (laughs) that rear Admiral Jack Niehoff uh, was fully represented on this, on this letter. So fantastic work. Like you gotta
1: find it can be a dark world out there, right? This is like a tough pod, but like, I'm glad that there are heroes Mm -hmm. out there in the world that, that are able to look at a situation like that letter circulating and, and, and get this done. Like congratulations to you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. You know,
0: Thank you for your service uh, uh, to all the weirdos. I probably should have stacked together the space story and Jack Mehoff and not put the Uyghur story in between. That's my mistake as a producer <laughs> of the show. But uh, when we come back, we will have my conversation with Congresswoman Betty McCollum uh, about her bill to condition USA to Israel. So stick around for that. We are so excited to be joined by the Congresswoman from Minnesota's 4th District, Congresswoman Betty McCollum. Thank you so much for doing the show.
4: It's great to be here with you.
0: So I, I'm so excited to talk with you because, you know, listeners hear so much about what the White House is doing or not doing when it comes to foreign policy, but I feel like we have far less visibility in, in conversation about the role Congress plays or can play. So I really appreciate your time. Um the first question for you is you introduced this bill called the Defending the Human Rights of Palestinian Children and Families Living Under Israeli Military Occupation Act. Um, can you just give us a sense of what that bill does and why you wanted to introduce it?
4: Well, UNICEF and some human rights uh, groups came into our office back several years ago, and they had a, they had a report on the military detention of these, these young children. And these young Palestinian children were being rusted out of their home. Some of them were having uh, hoods put over their head. They were uh, put in stress positions and then transported to military detention centers, Israeli military detention centers. They did this without a parent uh, knowing necessarily where they were going. They did that without an attorney at the other end. Uh, Some of these children uh, were tortured. Many of them uh, just broke down and would sign a confession in a language uh, that, you know, in Hebrew. Uh, and these are Palestinian children, Hebrew is not their language. Uh, that, and so uh, when I found out about that, I was like, you know, outraged. I mean, I've been speaking up on child labor rights all around the world, um, working on maternal child health all around the world. And to see uh, this was, was just, just disturbing to me. And how are we gonna stop the, 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 the cycle of violence to continue when children are not only witness and their parents at um, lines, uh, you know, being searched uh, and humiliated. Uh, but then, when the children are taken uh, on top of it, we were just creating another generation of, of violence. And uh, having had the privilege of working a little bit on the Northern Ireland uh, peace process and hearing the moms and the kids talk, I just knew I couldn't be quiet about what was going on in the Palestinian um, occupied area.
0: Yeah. So let me just ask you about some of the the criticisms of you know this bill and this policy because I think it's important to try to surface those. You know, President Biden said during the campaign that cuts or conditioning U.S. aid to Israel would be irresponsible. I think he used the words outrageous. He said it was a gigantic mistake. Um, similarly, you know, APAC I think called your bill unnecessary and redundant, and they believe it would undermine U.S. interests and make peace less likely. Like, what's your response? to those who say uh, that US aid to Israel shouldn't be conditioned or cut in, in any circumstance or that you know legislation like yours is, is unnecessary?
4: We condition money all the time. Uh, we condition money with our fellow citizens if it's unemployment. We condition money uh, for, uh, for loans uh, to, to businesses. We put conditions on some of the money for COVID. We condition mm-hmm. money and aid to our fellow citizens. We also condition money and aid to um, foreign, foreign governments that we work with, whether it's, it was healthcare aid during, during PETFAR or military aid, um, you know, whether it's going to the Philippines or whether it's going to Israel. We do have the Leahy Law in place, but, but there's different things going on with, with the money that we give Israel. First and foremost, my bill, my defense bill, will continue to have money in there for Iron Dome. I don't want to see mm-hmm. any Israeli child living in fear. I don't want to see any Israeli mom and 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 her little ones escaping off, off, you know, for their life. Because Hamas Hamas is, you know, part to blame in this. Hamas is not seeking peace. They're creating violence. So we've got the extreme, extreme right in Israel, we've got the extreme, you know, uh, with, with with Hamas. And so they're the only ones benefiting on this. So what we can do for security. Um, you know, for is, Israeli children, I want them to live in peace and harmony too. But going back to your question about conditioning, mm-hmm. um, we, we, you know, we sell um, equipment to Israel. We put conditions on equipment that we sell to other countries saying that they can't be used for human rights abuse. But then we have cash payment to Israel, no strings attached. And so I want to make sure that not one penny of that is helping to subsidize or be used in any way to take land away from Palestinians, to destroy Palestinian homes, and to detain Palestinian children in military detention centers. And people will say, oh, well, you know, the Leahy's Law's there. We we make everybody else that that we uh, put conditions on money to show us where the money's gone and how it's been spent. And I see those reports now on a regular basis. Israel Mm -hmm. shouldn't be treated any different.
0: Can you explain what the Leahy Law is?
4: So the Leahy Law is a human rights law saying that, um, that if, if we are um, part of uh, being support to another country when it comes to military, that human rights abuses aren't, aren't going to be occurring. And so people say to me, well, prove to me where, where the human rights abuses occurred. And I, and I say, well, prove to me that the money hasn't been used for human rights abuse, transparency, and an audit.
0: So I noticed uh, last evening, Monday evening, there was a report that uh, Representative Gregory Meeks, who's now the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, said that he is going to send President Biden a letter requesting a delay in the sale of more than $700 million of precision guided missiles to Israel. Um, did that surprise you? I mean, that that felt like... Um, uh, I, I don't recall seeing uh, an effort quite like that to restrict military uh, sales to Israel as quickly during one of these conflicts.
4: Uh, I'm not on on that committee. I talked to a couple of members who are on the committee and in other members. Members were quite taken back and very disappointed, and I, I think you've seen that in the numbers, both in the Senate and the House, that President Biden wasn't calling for an immediate ceasefire, um, and so I think that that. That in part is a way to get the president's attention. And Mm. I also think members of Congress uh, are very alarmed uh, at at what is happening in in Gaza. Uh, We have seen, you know, um, American AP, Algeria, um, uh, some of the, the buildings where a lot of the media was reporting out, right? Reporters have always been on both sides. Uh, of, of, of a conflict when they can be, or a war when they can be. And the fact that that building was destroyed and mm-hmm. uh, you know, AP's voice was taken down uh, was another thing that really alarmed members of Congress. And so um, they they wanna, see, they wanna see a stop to this, but the only way it's really gonna stop, this is just a cycle of ongoing violence, right? Another settlement's built, there's more violence. Uh, children are detained, there's more, more violence. A land, uh, land and water rights are taken away from Palestinians, more violence. And that's, the heart of that is the occupation. So if we want to see the violence come to an end, the United States has to assert itself as an honest broker working with some other uh, nations, whether they be Scandinavian, Nordic or uh, uh, EU, Um, Mm -hmm. whoever wants to come to the table and say the occupation needs to end.
0: So, you know, I I appreciate you saying that because, look, we're all hoping for a quick end to this fighting. But to your point, I mean, once that happens, the Israelis and Palestinians will be living with the aftermath of all this violence and all the tensions that have flared within Israel, within the West Bank, within Gaza. And, you know, the Palestinian Authority will still be run by President Abbas, who is not proven to be particularly competent. And then Bibi Netanyahu will probably run for prime minister for a fifth time in, in two years. And it just... It feels like this recipe for the status quo. Um, And I'm wondering what else you think the US can or should do to more forcefully promote peace to try to snap us out of that cycle that you were just talking about.
4: I think we have to realize the government that we're dealing with in in Israel. And we were having a, a conversation here in the office and it was like, you know, the eight years of Obama and four years of Trump, we were a different country with Trump at the, at the helm. Mm -hmm. And I think some of my uh, colleagues um, are living in a romantic view of when Israel was working very, very hard at a peace process, um, Benjamin Netanyahu is not working for a peace process. You know, st- settlements uh, keep going forward. The military detention of children, even though it's been brought out in human rights and that, you know, it's just, you know, uh, you know waved off. Um, you know, the, the, the nation state law that was passed in Israel where Arab Israeli citizens are treated as second class citizens is something that even members of Congress are just waking up to now. This is not the same um, uh, Israeli government that, um, you know, that Jimmy Carter and uh, the the Clintons and even President Obama, you know, he he came up against, uh, you know, a brick wall dealing with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu on on settlements and that. And he exerted as more, um, you know, I want to say common sense about talking about how, you know, if we're going to get to a two-state solution, expanding settlements, Israel is not the way to get there. It's the way to keep it from happening. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, is, it, is, it is a government that is, um, you know, very much determined in Israel right now uh, to uh, gain and grab as much uh, power and authority as it can over the Palestinians. And that's not going to end well for Israel. It's not going to end well for the Palestinians, the Middle East, or the United States.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, like this is obviously such an emotionally charged conversation, right? I mean, you have the the history of the Holocaust, and you know, leading to the creation of Israel, and, and you know, the the understandable uh, emotional desire among Zionists to have a state where they are safe and secure. And like, of course, I understand that. Um, and then you also have you know, good faith people on the other side who are are deeply concerned uh, about. Palestinian rights, uh, their, their human rights, their right to self-determination, their their basic humanity and freedom. And sometimes it's very hard to meet in the middle and have a good faith conversation about US-Israel policy and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict without it quickly devolving into um, maybe an emotional reaction or in, at times a bad faith criticism where criticism of policies or leaders is painted as inherently anti-Semitic. H- how have you navigated these waters, right? Because it, it, is, it is rare to have a member of Congress like yourself put forward a very bold policy on this issue. A lot of people uh, would rather avoid the issue to get ahead in Washington than, than to author a bill and put themselves in the middle of it. Why, why did you make that choice?
4: People of the Jewish faith have been discriminated um, and um, mistreated, and murdered and you know, the, and then we have Holocaust deniers. And then just what happened in Charlottesville after President Trump was elected and, and people were chanting in the street, carrying torches, white supremacists. We still have a lot of people in this country who um, you know, have, have uh, hate uh, for people who are different than themselves, whether it be religion, skin color, sexual orientation. Um, it, is, it is something that we have to face head on and we have to stand in solidarity with our Jewish brothers and sisters and our Muslim brothers and sisters to coexist, to treat each other with dignity and respect. And so it comes down to me with a fundamental human, human right. What did I want for my children when they were born? What did my parents want for, for me? They wanted me to have peace, security, good health and opportunity. And when I travel all around the world and I've had the, the opportunity to do that working on maternal child health, that's what every parent wants for their child. And we have, to, um, we have to come together with that. That's a basic human value that we all share, whether you're a parent, you're an aunt, an uncle. Uh, we want children to have hope and opportunity. And if we can focus on that as a common ground, I think we can move forward together. So that's why my bill focuses on, on children's rights, right? If we can't agree that a child, uh, you know, uh, a young child should not be taken out of their home in the middle of the night, uh, put in stress positions, uh, tortured in some cases, uh, without, uh, without sounding alarm bells, um, then we're, we're not living our American values. And whether it's friend or foe, whether it's my country or Israel, when I see a human rights violation committed, I feel I have an obligation if I want more just, more peaceful world for the future to speak out on it. Spoke out on what was going on in in, um, Guantanamo. I've spoken out with what happened with, uh, you know, how we were torching people in, in, in Iraq. I speak out against my own government when I see human rights violations. When the Rohingya, when I was, uh, you know, in in, in Myanmar uh, shortly after uh, the the Rohingya were fleeing to Bangladesh, I spoke out um, to to the military officials there and told them what, what was doing wrong. And one of A- Aung San Suu Kyi's, uh, uh proteges told them that, that what was happening to the Rohingya, Rohingya or the Uyghurs in China. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be any different to tell another democratic nation, Israel, who is an al- who is an ally um, when it comes to democracy, but when they step out of the line of not living up to what I believe democracy values should be, I believe I have a right to say something.
0: Um, f- final question for you. We, we constantly talk about on, on this show and on Pots of America, uh, the best ways to lobby Congress, if you're out of state, you know, should you be calling Mitch McConnell's office? Should you be emailing? Should you be faxing? You are an expert. You are a member of Congress. You know what uh, constituents do that is the most annoying, that is the most likely to get your attention. So if you're a listener right now and you're hearing, you know, like r- about these reports of civilian casualties, you want to know what you can do to help, what to, how to press for a ceasefire. Wh- what advice do you have for them? Like, who should they lobby? What kinds of things should they ask for? Like, wh- wh- what do we do?
4: Well, all politics is local. So I think you start there. Um, you talk to uh, your local uh, member of Congress. Um, find out what their position is on things. Um, I've, I've, tell them why you feel what's happening is, is wrong. Um, what you would like to see them to, uh, to do. Um, then you go to your senator. And then certainly you can talk to, the, to, to leadership um, and express your views. But the, the, the most impactful thing is the person that you're, that's directly representing you. Because mm-hmm. why? You're directly voting for them. But I think also letting the White House uh, know what you feel and then get involved if you want to take it the next step. There's plenty of faith groups and and nonprofit organizations and international organizations that work on human rights issues all around the world. And uh, I would encourage somebody who, who wants to engage on this also to make themselves a person who's going to engage on human rights wherever they see a violation. Um, this, is, this is a wonderful place uh, to, to start um, because we really need your help in getting the word out that the, this does not reflect America's values. It does not reflect um, values of treating people with dignity and respect. And the ceasefire needs to happen uh, soon. The occupation needs to end and children need to stop being traumatized by witnessing violence and discrimination day in and day out and that's the children both in Israel and Palestinian, in the Palestinian Authority. The children in Israel, when they, when they witness at checkpoints how Palestinian children are treated, uh, that's not good for Israeli children to watch too, and that's why I'm so proud of the support we have from any of the groups in, in Israel who work on human rights supporting our bill too, and J Street as well here in the United States.
0: Excellent. Great, great, great groups. Um, uh, thank you congresswoman so much for your time. Thank you for your excellent advice about how to be annoying to you in the future <laughs> we will we will take you up on it and uh, we really appreciate you doing the show.
4: All the best and thank you for doing doing this and, and journalism's important and I'm glad your voice is being heard
0: Thanks to Congresswoman McCollum. Uh Ben, I don't know, do, do I need to apologize for my Attack on the Knicks. I'm talking to to, uh, to Jason Concepcion later for uh, for a segment uh, on take line, and you know I, I got I need some material. If you have anything for me to prepare that I can sort of use to clap back at him if he talks shit about Boston.
1: I mean, if you want to, I just basically heap scorn and talk shit about James Dolan, the worst uh, sports yeah, owner. Dolan. You and you and Jason could find solidarity and in, um, in trashing James Dolan, who's punished Nick fans. For twenty years with his kind of sadistic ownership, and and the reason the Knicks are good is they finally kind of set up an organizational structure that kind of got Dolan out of things, hired a really good coach in Tom Thibodeau, and built a team around a star player in Julius Randle who did the work, you know. Um. So, but but Jason, I think you you'll find you know more than happy to probably pile on Dolan.
0: So you're you're recommending the high road, I guess.
1: I'm kind of recommending the high road, right? I mean, you can you can do that.
0: All right, I'll, I'll demand a, a CS. Uh, what you could do
1: is you could also dunk on him about all the past years that the Celtics, you know, <laughs> crushed the Knicks, which is many. Um, there we go. Yeah, yeah.
0: Now we're talking. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll work on some material. I got a couple hours here. Uh, okay. Thanks everybody for tuning in today, and we will talk to you next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, Narmal Konian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes as videos each week.